Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have David Gartenstein Ross back on the show, and we are going to revisit Bin Laden's legacy. I know we did a show, oh, probably a couple of years ago on this topic, but my co-producer Sina and I thought it would be great to revisit this topic considering everything that's been going on. So, first of all, welcome back to the Loopcast, David. Thank you, Chelsea. It's great to join you, and uh, thank you and Sina for host for creating and hosting this podcast. Um, podcasts, I think, are so valuable across so many spheres, um, especially the national security sphere. And having the Loopcast, which I see as a place where um, you get to hear people's uh, views about topics, you know, experts' views in long form. Uh, has been so valuable and intellectually enriching for me, and I know for so many other people in this field. Um, it's a real uh, labor of love that I know isn't doing much for you uh, financially or resume-wise. So I just, on behalf of myself, and I know so many listeners, uh, thanks for all that you do. Oh, well, thank you. I I really appreciate that because my co-producer, Sean, and I, we really wanted to start something that would just inform people and give people a platform to have that time to really expand on their their thoughts and views on topics. So mission accomplished. So it's good. For those that might not know David, and I'm sure you probably do already, I'm going to just do a little intro. So he is the CEO of Valens Global and a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense and Democracies. And his expertise focuses on understanding how violent non-state actors affect the world, along with jihadist movements, including Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, Ansar al-Sharia, and we're not going to name all the groups, but David is a fantastic expert in this topic, so this is going to be a great show. So why don't we start off with just looking at, in your words, David, how you see Bin Laden's legacy regarding the United States. Sure. I'll, I'll correct one thing in your introduction. Oh, okay. uh, because you said you thought we talked about it uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was actually seven years ago. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah, my mind is not going to reach out that far anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, for one thing, it shows the longevity of your podcast. Uh, for another, it dates when this book came out. Um, this book came out in September of 2011. Uh, around the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And so at the time in 2011, you had a very different set of discussions occurring. Um, you know, I started writing the book uh, in January of that year, although um, it's based on a project that stretched back um, quite a bit longer than that. And when I started writing it, you know, the big event that was rocking the region, the, the Middle East and North Africa region, was the Arab Spring Revolutions. There was a powerful debate in the field about what the impact of these revolutions would be on jihadism. And I know we'll talk about that debate. But then the other thing is that uh, bin Laden himself was killed uh, on May 1st of 2011. Originally, um, you know, the, you know, the bulk of the book was written prior to his death. I actually had to change the title uh, when bin Laden was killed. And the day that he was killed was actually the day I finished the manuscript. Oh uh, I finished the manuscript on, on May 1st, and you know, I was in San Antonio, Texas. I, I'd been teaching um, for the U.S. military prior to uh, a unit deploying, and I stayed over um, 
you know, basically an extra week at, at the hotel um, that I was teaching from. Um, basically had kind of a writer's retreat where I was going to finish the book. So I got it done on May 1st, and I went down to the hotel bar for dinner and a drink to celebrate having finished the book. And uh, you know, there were these rumors on, on Twitter. Um, you know, it was, there's was big news that, that Obama was going to give an announcement. And I was you know, following along on Twitter, and, and you know, sure enough, the announcement is that bin Laden was killed. And I realized there was a, uh, you know, A, that was good news. B, it meant there was a lot more work I'd have to do to, to retool the book. But the central thesis remained the same. Um, now, so as to what the argument is, and, and sorry, that was a long-winded way of, of contextualizing the book. But I think it, it's worth um, putting it into the context of when it was written, because so much has changed since then. And you know, one thing that I've said is that the book has the distinction, you know, it might be an honorable distinction, it might be a dubious distinction, but it has the distinction of having been transformed from in 2011, something where it was seen as so counterintuitive by the reading audience that people were not taking it seriously, uh, to you know, seven years later being seen as so obvious that now people wonder why a book is even needed. Um, just in my view, that makes it successful, and we can talk about some of the debates that were occurring. But essentially, the the core argument um, is that insurgents win by not losing. Uh, a lot of the argument that I, I make deals with the economics of terrorism, the cost of fighting terrorism, the cost of defending against terrorist attacks, the cost that it takes uh, to carry out an attack versus costs that it imposes on the enemies, um, all of that. But the the bottom line is that insurgents win by not losing. They win by exhausting the enemy to the point that the costs of fighting the insurgents are seen as too high. And in 2018, we can see how that's playing out. Um, it's very clear uh, that jihadist movements are not losing. Um, you know, It's not 2014 where uh, you had ISIS with enough territory uh, to be considered a proto-state and people debating whether we should recognize ISIS as an official state. You know, we're not at that point. Um, fortunately, ISIS has lost ground. But we're at a point where these groups are powerful, they're normalized, they're at the forefront of multiple insurgencies, and we're asking the exact questions that Bin Laden's legacy anticipates questions like, you know, is it worth it carrying out the fight? How do we control costs, especially in light of other challenges from Russia and China and ecological challenges and economic challenges and the artificial intelligence race and all these other big issues that we confront as a country? So looking at then and now, what would we consider Bin Laden's legacy I mean, I know that's a huge question because it's there's so many levels of it. But is there one thing that stands out to you from looking at the time that you wrote the book to now post Bin Laden? Yet we still have Al Qaeda and all of these other groups that have come on the scene. The main thing uh, I'd say is that Bin Laden was uh, instrumental in doing a few things that intersect with one another. One is um, focusing uh, disparate jihadist movements on a far enemy strategy, uh, focusing attacks against the United States and the West. Now, I, I don't think the far enemy strategy is as prevalent within these movements now as it was, say, in 2009 or 2010. 
around the time that this book was conceived and written. I think that the Arab Spring revolutions have changed that. But the foreign enemy strategy was very important for a period. Um, it absolutely uh, caused the, sucked the U.S. into a variety of conflicts throughout the world and in that way um, had an indelible impact on uh, geopolitics. Um, the second thing is he was able to uh, form an organization that operates in complex ways, in fact, ways that are so complex that even now, you know, almost 20 years into the global war on terrorism, you have these significant debates about how the organization even operates. Um, the founding principles, and this is something which I don't get into as much in Bin Laden's legacy uh, as much as it comes out of subsequent work that I've done, but the founding principles that Bin Laden established for al-Qaeda um, for example, uh, the principle of centralization of decision and decentralization of action or implementation um, still have a great deal of power and in fact have uh, become more complex and more powerful as the organization has expanded and as it has taken on affiliates throughout the world. Uh, so those would be the two things that I would say are, are central. You're taking these disparate movements and unifying them on a, around a common enemy and creating this complex organizational structure that has contributed to making al-Qaeda what it is today. And considering their affiliates, let's look at that a, that a bit because the affiliates have become a very big thing because you had al-Qaeda that was a bit more centralized in a sense way back when, but now it's sort of split up. We've got all these affiliates that are, in a sense, doing their own thing a bit compared to as much of a central influence, I would say. Yeah, that's one of the central debates within the field. Um, I would regard the central leadership as influential. Uh, I think that it's good that there are debates around this, and... You know, to some extent, uh, we're all blind men grappling at an elephant. Mm -hmm. But uh, you're, of course, familiar uh, with that uh, metaphor. Yes. But as information has come out about various affiliates, one thing I'd point out is this is an area where conventional wisdom has consistently been proven wrong. So in Mali, um, you know, when you had al-Qaeda, the Islamic Maghreb's kind of affiliates and allies advance and take over uh, northern Mali in 2012 and keep it until the French intervention, you had a you know, powerful debate about what the connection was. And you know, documents that were subsequently uncovered and you know, Rukbini Kalamaki, um, now of the New York Times, reported on them at the time, they suggested a greater degree of interrelation among African jihadists than uh, than most of the field held. Um, a second example is the Boko Haram documents that have come out. Um, the, the, there's a powerful debate within um, people who study Boko Haram. You had, uh, for example, a hit piece by five academics written against my colleague Jacob Zen over this issue. But the bottom line is when you look at, at the documents, uh, the, the documentary evidence, there's been more support um, for Boko Haram by al-Qaeda uh, you know, prior to Boko Haram leaving the group for ISIS, then um, you know the majority of analysts studying the group uh, believed to be the case. 
likewise, you know, for, from theater to theater, uh, there's just more connection than people generally think. Now, that's not to say that there's perfect centralization. There obviously isn't. Uh, there are real limitations to al-Qaeda's senior leadership's power, and we can see that playing out in uh, a number of conflicts over in, in recent years. One of them is the al-Qaeda-ISIS conflict. Uh, ISIS, of course, had been an al-Qaeda affiliate before it was you know, expelled from the group. But had it not been expelled, it was you know, extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, for the senior leadership to control because of the degree of its power. Uh, likewise, uh, you have um, a conflict now between uh, al-Qaeda and the leadership of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is their Syrian affiliate. Uh, there's mediation taking place, but it's obvious that you have uh, not necessarily the same situation, but an analogous situation to the al-Qaeda-ISIS conflict, where a powerful affiliate, um, although one that's under increasing pressure, has been asserting itself independently, and the senior leadership is up against the limitations of how much control it could exercise. But the strategy, is, as I mentioned, that, that bin Laden had outlined, uh, and this applied you know, to terrorist attacks primarily, but now the organization, you know, in addition to being a terrorist group, also functions as a powerful insurgent group across multiple theaters. The, the, strat- the, the strategy he had outlined, the, the method he had, methodology he had outlined, was one of centralization of decision and decentralization of execution. So the independence of affiliates, I would say, is not you know, a defect from the central leadership's perspective. That's how things are supposed to operate in general. And central leadership um, you know, will coordinate things that are transnational in nature. You know, Having one group back up another one, providing guidelines for conflict, and we can see the impact of those guidelines. You know, for one thing, Zawahiri has given a stand-down order in terms of attacks against the U.S., to most of the affiliates other than the Yemeni affiliate. Uh, we can see um, Zawahiri's guidelines for jihad, which were designed to um, have al-Qaeda move in a different direction than ISIS. While ISIS was ramping up uh, its um, brutality, al-Qaeda was becoming less overtly brutal. And we can see that being generally followed um, throughout the, the various affiliates. So I would say that that one of the areas where I think um, you know there's unanswered questions, but where I depart from um, views that have been prevalent over the past few years uh, is in seeing the affiliates as being um, extraordinarily independent. Rather, uh, there absolutely is decentralization of execution. There absolutely are limitations on the senior leadership's degree of control. Uh, but I think that um, you know it, it, it's an area where. I think it's always worth being skeptical when you have um, the fields verge, the fields uh, views con- converge on a certain conclusion where we can't see the underlying evidence. And this one, um, the relationship between uh, central leadership and affiliates, is one where uh, I think that that a lot of conclusions have been too sharp. And uh, an article of mine, um, it's a long piece, it's 20,000 words long, but I published it earlier this year in Current Trends in in uh, Islamist Ideology at the Hudson Institute. Uh, it's called How Al-Qaeda Works. And it goes into just the voluminous evidence for my argument about you know, the relevance of the central leadership and how that relationship with affiliates proceeds. 
considering all of this and then going back to bin Laden's been killed and we had the Arab Spring and the revolution, if you could call it that, in Egypt, and we had Tunisia and then Syria came on the scene. Why don't we look at this sort of historical timeline building up to where we are now? So how does the Arab Spring fit into bin Laden's legacy? And then, you know, al-Nusra and Daesh coming on the scene as well. So let's talk about that a bit. Certainly. And I mentioned the debates uh, concerning the Arab Spring. Yes. Um, I have a short section in bin Laden's legacy talking about the impact of the Arab Spring. And it was arguing against something which was conventional wisdom at the time. Back in 2011, when I wrote this, um, the field had massively uh, thrown in on the idea that the Arab Spring revolutions were going to be very bad for jihadism. Uh, There's a piece uh, by Scott Shane in the New York Times, which I've um, quoted numerous times, uh, which was called as uh, something, the title, it's visitor memory, but it's something like as Arab regimes fall, Al-Qaeda watches history fly by, which you know, quotes um, you know, numerous experts about how devastating this was for jihadist groups. And Scott Shane, um, in uh, one of his later books, uh, talks about, um, actually goes back through and talks about this article and how at the time – you know, he really bought into the idea that the Arab Spring was devastating, and you know, the only person he quoted who had a dissenting view was Michael Scheuer, who is um, in so many different ways an outlier uh, within the field. Um, but you know, so I, I threw in on the side that the uh, Arab Spring was not going to be devastating to jihadism. Um, that is, you know, absolutely proven correct since then, quite obviously, and that's one reason why, as we talk about um, the relationship between al-Qaeda core and affiliates, um, as I said, you know, my view here is um, contrary to what I think is the field's conventional wisdom, but that's one reason why I'm so comfortable arguing against conventional wisdom. I've done that uh, on numerous occasions, and there's, there's never been a time when I've taken um, what you might call a contrarian view when I feel like uh, when the cards were down, that I ended up being wrong and the conventional wisdom ended up being right. That in itself is a topic for discussion. You know, when you have conventional wisdom getting proven wrong again and again, uh, I think that how we construct knowledge is something that needs to be discussed and debated much more powerfully than it is. But let's leave that broader discussion aside and go to your question about the timeline. So the Arab Spring revolutions did uh, multiple things. The biggest one is it destabilized the region. Um, you know, revolutions, no matter um, how peaceful they are, are inherently destabilizing. And in the countries where you had a more peaceful revolution, um, you know, Tunisia, uh, you said you know, Egypt may or may not be considered a revolution, which is you know, exactly correct. But we certainly, uh, you certainly did get protesters out, resulting in um, you know, the military uh, deposing Mubarak. You did have some intelligence headquarters destroyed by protesters and the like. But in, in Egypt and Tunisia, what the jihadist movement anticipated was a greater degree of openness. Um, Tunisia in particular is a good example of how this would occur. The uh, Ben Ali regime had generally oppressed all Islamist groups, whether they're Muslim Brotherhood aligned or jihadist in orientation. The An-Nahda party, which is the um, Brotherhood aligned um, Islamist political party, uh, is one example. They'd been 
uh, heavily suppressed during the Ben Ali years that became this powerful political faction after the revolution. And um, jihadists anticipated quite correctly that um, there would be a loosening of restrictions against, um, in particular, uh, Islamist and even jihadist proselytism, uh, dawah. And uh, so the local uh, al-Qaeda affiliate, uh, it was uh, you know, a front group, but it's very clear now that it was, um, in fact, you know, part of the al-Qaeda organization, uh, was Ansar al-Sharia Tunisia. Uh, they engaged in very open dawah work. You know, when I was uh, doing field research in Tunisia uh, back in 2013, I was able to you know, watch Ansar al-Sharia guys out in some of the major markets, and they'd be you know, undertaking dawah, uh, talking to people about um, their interpretation of Islam, and you'd have tourists just you know, 10 feet away not realizing that there were you know, these al-Qaeda-affiliated guys you know, j- within arm's distance of them. Um, so there was that degree of openness while at the same time, um, they were also engaging in, um, what you can call hispa. Uh, hispa is a hard to translate term, but it relates to the idea of, um, enjoining the good and forbidding the wrong, which is a Quranic concept. And essentially for jihadist organizations, hispa is focusing violence on people who are seen, um, in some way as uh, engaging in acts that are theologically unacceptable. It might be uh, women who aren't properly covered. It might be uh, films like, in Tunisia's case, Persepolis, that are seen as uh, blasphemous. It might be um, you know hotel bars that serve alcohol. Uh, all of these, and secularist politicians, were targets. You know, back in 2013, before Ansar al-Sharia was banned, two secularist politicians were assassinated by jihadists in that country. Um, and at the same time, um, on the, uh, western, uh, in the western part of Tunisia, they were also ramping up military conflict against the state. So that kind of outlines the model for Tunisia, which I describe as Dawa Hizba Jihad, which is basically a way to take a stable society um, and gradually transform it into a place where jihadism plays a bigger role and where the country is gradually getting more destabilized. We've seen um, you know, other manifestations since then, major terrorist attacks against uh, tourist targets, against presidential guards, and the like. Now, the thing is that this strategy of taking relatively stable countries and using openness to uh, move them closer to um, open warfare or to jihadists playing a major role, this was overtaken by another set of events on the ground, which was destabilization. So one thing I opposed uh, fairly strongly, and bin Laden's legacy gets into this, is the NATO intervention in Libya, which uh, ended up uh, you know, upending the Libyan state. And um, jihadists in Libya have played a much more major role on the ground, uh, including coming to control major cities. You know, ISIS conquered Sirte, um, Al-Qaeda-aligned groups were in control of Derna uh, until the recent uh, Khalifa Hiftar offensive. Um, and uh, terrorist attacks, both against, uh, you know, particularly those against Tunisia, uh, were often formulated in uh, Libya, especially in the town of Sabratha. Uh, you even had uh, an invasion of an entire Tunisian city, the city of Ben Gardane, which was organized in Libya, um, you know, an, an urban warfare-style attack, which briefly ended up overrunning a Tunisian town. Uh, 
Um, then, of course, there's Syria. Um, Syria has been the biggest draw for jihadists. In 2011, you still hadn't reached a civil war in Syria. Um, you had a situation, rather, of relatively peaceful protest and state repression. Uh, but it got increasingly violent and became a major uh, magnet for jihadism. Um, Al-Qaeda had an undeclared affiliate operating there for some time, Jabhat al-Nusra, which then got into conflict with ISIS. You know, the rest of this is, a, is fairly well-known, and I don't want to retread uh, well-known history about the Syrian conflict. Uh, but suffice to say, that became a huge foreign fighter magnet. Um, it gave rise to, um, to ISIS's um, first ascension in power. Uh, and then its major offensive into Iraq, its capture of territory after which it declared a caliphate. And then another uh, consequence both of ISIS's rise and also its innovative use of social media and innovative use of encryption is we're now seeing a pace of attacks uh, across the world, which we hadn't seen before from jihadist groups, both in terms of the rapidity of attacks and also the competence and lethality. If you look at you know, attacks in Europe, in the 2015, 2016, 2017 period, um, it's the kind of uh, you know, large-scale lethal attacks coming one after the other that we had not seen before coming from the jihadist movement. It's directly related to ISIS's rise. So we've seen a, a huge rebirth in the jihadist movement. Uh, and we talked about a few theaters, but it extends beyond that. It extends into Southeast Asia, for example, uh, where you had an ISIS affiliate last year undertake a major uh, offensive in the Philippines, capturing uh, the city of Marawi um, for a several-month-long period, um, all of which is evidence of not only a vibrant movement, but a vibrant movement whose rebirth is directly related to the Arab Spring, which, as I you know, started this um, you know, answer pointing out, this is 180 degrees from what the analytic consensus was predicting back when bin Laden's legacy was written. So considering ISIS, for instance, and bin Laden's legacy of, yes, he had the near and the far enemy, but there was a point where he was focusing on the far enemy and the group was, could you, in a sense, consider ISIS and their ideology and their attacks on Western countries that we were just discussing, could you kind of, in a sense, consider it a rejection or an endorsement in its own right of bin Laden's legacy and strategy? So I'd say neither, uh, in the sense that, like, at least in terms of the how the question is framed. Um, so the first thing is I'd say that the near enemy versus far enemy strategy it is just that. It's strategic as opposed to ideological. And a good strategy is dynamic in nature, right? A good strategy will change as events on the ground change. I think events on the ground definitively changed. Al-Qaeda itself has moved in the you – know, at, at this point, if you look at Al-Qaeda versus ISIS, ISIS is much more focused on carrying out attacks against the far enemy, even while it gains ground regionally, than Al-Qaeda is. And I don't think that either of their approaches is an endorsement or a rejection of bin Laden strategically. Rather, I think if bin Laden were alive, he would have a different uh, – take on what his strategy, what the group strategy should be than he had in 1996 or in 2001 or in 2006. Strate especially when you're a small actor. Strategy changes based on events on the ground. And I, I make this argument at some length in talking about the Muhammad Ali versus George Foreman 
uh, boxing match. Um, and, you know, this is kind of a central metaphor in Bin Laden's legacy. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that boxing match, um, you know, called the Rumble in the Jungle, was one uh, where uh, George Foreman was heavily favored. You know, he was the stronger boxer. And what ended up happening is Muhammad Ali used the very elastic ropes to absorb the strength of Foreman's blows. You know, for round after round, in the beginning of the match, uh, Foreman was pummel- pummeling Muhammad Ali uh, until eventually he tired and Ali ended up uh, pulling off the upset and winning that match. But the the way um, I looked at it, and this is taken from, um, you know, it, it's an it's not my original analogy, right? It was actually taken from an academic article, and I give full credit um, to the the author who came up with it. But it's how small actors fight against superpowers like the United States. You have to, uh, at least to some extent, transform the enemy's strength into a liability, which is part of what um, Bin Laden's strategy and Al Qaeda's strategy was designed to do. But when you reach 2011 with the United States having expended already trillions of dollars on fighting jihadist groups, and um, suddenly there's revolutions which give jihadist groups, whether it's ISIS or al-Qaeda, more regional opportunities, at that point, strategy is going to change. So my two points are, are one, and, and this is something which I think is a mistake that has made it some analytic work. Sometimes analysts see the... Um, far enemy strategy as an ideology as opposed to a strategy, whereas I think the right way to look at it is as a strategy that was inherently designed as being changeable and something that would change once dynamics changed. Um, And then uh, secondly, um, people need to understand that especially, you know, Al-Qaeda was was formulated um, to be uh, dynamic in nature. Um, At no point was it meant to be a static organization. Um, It had um, extraordinarily lofty goals. And, you know, we can see now that these goals were not as unrealistic as most people thought they were. Uh, I'm not saying that Al-Qaeda is good to succeed. In fact, I would say that definitively that they are not in their high-end goals, but they have been able to change the world. They've been able to um, help to foster a very much destabilized region. They've been able to um, turn jihadism from a fringe movement into something that people think about very centrally and that has many times more adherence than it did before, many times more resources. And um, if you look at the 1990s, you had basically um, three regional struggles that jihadists were at the forefront of, four if you count Afghanistan, but the three are Libya, Egypt, and Algeria, whereas today there's far more than that. You can look at the destabilized countries in Mali, uh, in Yemen, in Somalia, uh, the jihadist advances in the Philippines. Uh, There's still Syria and Iraq, where even with ISIS having declined, the stage is set for more insurgency. You have concern in Jordan about the growth of jihadism within the country, and very justifiably so. It's a fundamentally different situation where these movements, unfortunately, play a much more powerful role. And on that point, there's been some discussion about AQAP, so Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and this idea that it's lost a lot of its strength and lost its leader, al-Wahishi. So there was a great piece in War on the Rocks recently by Gregory Johnson, 
And he mentioned that you have to look at the group in two different ways. So their terror campaigns and then their municipal outreach within the region. And he argues that, yes, maybe AQAP hasn't had as many attacks and and had that reach, yet they're doing a lot of on-the-ground social municipal work, which in a sense gets that organization more adherence because they're doing all this community service, I guess you could call it. What are your thoughts on that, looking at not just AQAP, but AQ as a whole and the different affiliates? I agree with that uh, strongly. And, you know, it's it's also not just, um, you know, community uh, projects that they have on the ground, but also uh, their engagement in insurgent violence. I think looking at these groups through the lens of terrorism is a mistake. And, you know, I'm not saying that they're not terrorist groups. They obviously all engage in terrorism. And this is not an academic distinction. Um, it's actually very relevant how terrorism can be a distorting uh a distorting frame. Terrorism is a tactic that definitionally is carried out by a weak organization uh, you know, when terrorism is their primary strategy. Um, a terrorist group, a group that primarily involved, engages in terrorist acts, is trying to provoke. It's carrying out attacks against civilian targets in order to try to trigger an overreaction against the group that it purports to represent in order to draw more recruits to its cause. And what it hopes to do is to deepen into an insurgency. So if you look at the 1990s, which I outlined before, and the three theaters, you know, in Egypt, you had a terrorist campaign. In uh, Libya, you had a terrorist campaign. And in Algeria, you had an insurgent campaign, one where the Islamists also employed terrorism, but you had this powerful civil war where over 100,000 Algerians were killed in the conflict, right? So there's what one can see is there's a huge difference in power between the three. Uh, the weakest was uh, the Libyan Islamic fi- fighting group, Lifji, which got smashed by the Qaddafi regime. Uh, in Egypt, uh, Egyptian Islamic Jihad and Gamal al-Islamiyya were a bit stronger and were able to carry out some very powerful attacks. But the strongest was Algeria, where um, it, the, the campaign you know, quickly slipped out of the what you'd call a terrorist campaign and you know, deepened into an insurgency or a civil war. So when you look at, at, at al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, um, and people do this for the range of al-Qaeda groups, they'll sometimes look at whether it's carrying out terrorist attacks and use the number of terrorist attacks against the West as a metric for determining what the organization's strength is. Um, this would be, uh, I think an accurate way to look at it if you still had this strong commitment to the far enemy strategy such that this is what those groups were doing and that was their primary means of advancing their agenda. But as I said before, that's just not the case. These groups are not just operating as terrorist organizations. Instead, they're operating in complex, hybridized ways. Some of them are insurgencies. Um, Some of them have multifaceted projects. But in Yemen, uh, similar to some other theaters where jihadists have become so strong, you have a collapse of the central government, a destabilized country, a lot of ability for jihadists to make up territory. And so the fact that they're not carrying out, you know, trying to execute an attack at the West at any given time, you know, doesn't indicate uh, that they're overall weak. As Johnson said, there are other things that they're focusing on. There are other metrics that suggest they're gaining more power. Moreover, 
I think it's worth looking at why they carry out attacks against the West um, through a strategic framework. They don't see attacks against the West as an end in themselves. In fact, you know, the, if you look at the far enemy strategy and why that was adopted, attacks against the West were thought of as a way that you could a way to um, break the connection between Western backers and local regimes. Attacks against the West were seen as a way of weakening local regimes and gaining ground within the theater. So a terrorist attack out of Yemen against Western targets, like an aviation attack, it might be helpful to them. But if, if they're going to prioritize it, you have to look at it in terms of how it fits within al-Qaeda's overall global-slash-transnational strategy. And to some extent, given all the gains that they're making, across multiple theaters, you know, an attack on an airplane is not the most helpful thing for this organization right now. And considering the larger scale of bin Laden's legacy and the political and economic costs that we've, here in the States at least, and also globally, we've got this war on terror, so to speak, and then we had the Iraq war and this ongoing conflict in Afghanistan, Looking at all this and, and Bin Laden's discussions on you know, targeting the economies of strong leading states and so forth, in a sense, could we say that Bin Laden won at least on that level? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that's the answer. I mean, the, the subtitle of Bin Laden's legacy is why we're still losing the war on terror. And um, looking at it through the framework of insurgents win by not losing, um, you know, compared to 2011 and compared to 2001, these groups are not losing. You have more jihadist activity. You have more involvement in the movement. It's more uh, financially backed at this point. Its state opponents are weaker, and the economic costs on the U.S. and U.S. allies have mounted. Uh, so if, if bin Laden were to look at his legacy in terms of where he has brought the jihadist movement, uh, I'm sure he would look at where the movement stands in 2018 as, you know, not just a success, but as the kind of tremendous success that, you know, even his allies would have doubted 20 years ago, you know, in 1998, when, uh, you know, their, their biggest operations to date at that point were the East African embassy bombings that occurred uh, in August of that year. Thinking about all this, is there a way to build resilience in this climate, do you think? Because terrorism has been so prevalent on so many levels in the last number of years, especially with ISIS on the scene and Al-Qaeda before that. Where do we go from here? I guess that's what I want to say. So I think, for one thing, um, Western societies, societies in general, tend to be more resilient than people expect. Um, I get into this in Bin Laden's legacy, uh, quoting from the work of Ben Shepard, but I, I think we tend to underestimate our societal resiliency. To me, uh, the biggest question isn't how do we make ourselves more resilient, but how do we make ourselves more effective in opposing violent non-state actors? Uh, when I wrote Bin Laden's legacy, there was this one question which haunted me. I didn't even raise it in the book, but in the various interviews I conducted for this book, I would always ask people, how do we 
empower good strategic thinking at a governmental level? And the answers that I got were depressing. Nobody had a good answer as to how you empower good strategic thinking. You know, from department to department and agency to agency, people were at a loss as to how we create good strategic thinking. Um, so I think the way I approach that question in the book is act- is is actually, um, you know, I was somewhat sidestepping the core issue. You know, I focused on U.S. strategic documents, and I pointed out that, you know, we hadn't th- thought things through strategically enough. But even if we thought things through more, I still don't think that would get us there. So anyway, what I'm referring to is basically I had this kernel of a question which would later develop into um, something that, that I've much more powerfully concentrated on. Um, the framework that I have now, and this was um, influenced in part by you know, my creation of Valence Global and actually having the experience of running an organization, uh, running a startup organization to boot. Um, the framework that I use now is I look at violent non-state actors as being essentially startup firms in the economic sphere, or sorry, in the political organizing sphere. Um, so in, in the economic sphere, in the business sphere, um, startup firms have certain advantages over legacy industries. Uh, they're less bureaucratized. They are able to change their strategy quickly. Uh, they're able to um, implement action quickly without going through multiple layers of authority. Uh, they are generally wedded to the latest technologies and you know, aren't a generation behind technologically. These are all advantages. Whereas um, legacy industries are often wedded to um, a different technological platform than currently exists. You know, good examples of this uh, would be the, um, you know, the late uh, Borders books. Right, which was very much wedded to being um, a brick-and-mortar bookseller at a time when um, the market was tilting in the direction of Kindle and becoming a digital trade. Another good example is uh, Blockbuster Video, which I think there's still, there's still one Blockbuster Video store in the U.S., but this used to be ubiquitous. There used to be a Blockbuster Video store in literally you know, every medium-sized town or bigger in America and in most small towns, and um, it got displaced by uh, first by um, the original Netflix um, strategy of mailing DVDs, but then much more powerfully by streaming video. Um, and at one point, you know, the CEO of Netflix approached the CEO of Blockbusters and said, you know, hey, maybe we could join forces, to which the CEO of Blockbusters disparagingly said, yeah, we don't need you. We're Blockbuster, and we could see how that ended up for them. But that's a legacy industry story where the entire architecture of their business, technological architecture, is changing, and they don't even realize it. Now, it's not as dramatic for states. You know, the nation state is not going away despite you know, what some uh, observers might think. But the competition between states and non-state actors is changing. Non-state actors are much more powerful than they were before. And states have a lot of problems in combating violent non-state actors. It's easier to destroy than to create. And um, states are being challenged by a wide array of problems these days. And so, as I said, violent non-state actors are like startup firms. States are legacy industries. They have a lot of trouble with violent non-state actors. And so I think looking at it through that frame, um, 
I have, I mean, the, the solution I've come up with, which I think, which I'm pushing most powerfully, is that we need to uh, endorse the startup within government model. Where you selectively debureaucratize, truly debureaucratize, you know, create authorities, create budgets for these startups within government. An example I've given multiple times, and you know, this is I'm not going to go into great detail in this because it's an example which I think was powerfully true in you know 2014 to 2016, and is less true today. But it's um, you know counter ISIS propaganda, where I think we had a window there to really debureaucratize counter ISIS's propaganda through a startup within government model. The reason why it's not as true today is because ISIS's uh, propaganda model and the jihadist propaganda model has shifted. Um, for one thing, ISIS is now getting pulled off of social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook, like nobody's business. It's really inhibited uh, the group's ability to make use of the platforms as skillfully as they did several years ago. Uh, but that's something which which I thought was a good example of where we can uh, implement this debureaucratization. If you look at J- JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, in many ways I think JSOC and to some extent USASOC or U.S. Army Special Operations Command are both, um, so, uh, at least somewhat, uh, startup within government models where, um, you know, again, in particular JSOC is meant to uh, reduce the amount of authorizations you need to go through, reduce the bureaucracy of warfighting, and I think that that is, um, you know, powerful and a good step. Um, I think that uh, the more we can try this startup within government model, the more we'll find uh, success with this model. Now, let me specify, though, nine out of ten startup firms in the business sphere fail within three years. So if we embrace this model, we have to uh, anticipate that a lot of startups within government are not going to succeed. But I think that's good, right? I think it's better to have clear success or clear failure rather than the risk aversion that we have now where um, you know, a lot of programs within government never clearly fail but never clearly succeed. And so objectives are not powerfully advanced. I think we need um, a 21st century model for government to address these fast-moving moving 21st century problems. Very interesting. So we have a couple of questions from listeners that I want to get to because um, some of them actually fall into this one. So we have one from, and I'm sorry if I destroy your last name, Karen, but Karen Tomintery, that's just how I'm going to pronounce it. And she has this thought that the threat of modern day jihad is constant and real. And she wants to know how citizens can see this reality and the factions that have caused the idea of jihad and violence and what potentially can happen to society and the goals of jihadists towards Westerners. So she wants to know, how can citizens prevent future acts of terrorism, especially related to ideas of suspicion with coworkers and neighbors, etc.? I think this is a difficult one. Yes. Um, even if you're not using citizens. Right. Even if you're using, say, if you're implementing new um, protection measures in airports, um, if you're the architect of a policy, one thing you have to anticipate is at some point this policy will be misused. Not necessarily by like TSA officers who are malicious. Um, instead, think of TSA officers who are vigilant 
but who are who lack cultural sensitivity or cultural awareness and um, are in in the course of their hyper vigilance just end up making missteps. Uh, TSA officers are trained, right? They're professionals. And you know if you implement kind of a new um, policy which is based on kind of widespread uh, profiling of threats, no matter how well-intentioned it is, you can anticipate that it's going to be misused, it's going to be misunderstood, something bad is going to happen. That doesn't necessarily make it a bad policy. But as you try to diffuse suspicion to citizens, I think that um, you run into more problems. Now, some things I think leveraging citizens in things like if you see something, say something. I think that is is positive, right? If people see a uh, you know an unattended backpack, it's absolutely right to you know tell someone in a position of authority because that's the kind of thing that you see before an attack. There'll be a backpack or a package sitting around. And then next thing you know, it blows up. This has happened in multiple locations. Um, it's hard to leverage the power of citizens. Uh, now, Karen, you know, uh, she has a very interesting background. I'm not going to get into it on the show, but she's someone who, who suffice to say, like she, she knows this problem very well. Um, she's in a position where she's she's not an amateur at all when it comes to these issues. One thing which I would like to see, we talked before about. Um, analysis and how, in my view, conventional wisdom within the field should not be getting things wrong as often as it does. One thing I'd like to see people who are just kind of interested in the field do is look back at track records. Like I, To me, I think one of the things I want to concentrate on fixing, and I, I told you how I kind of want to fix the problem of action at a governmental level. I think by advocating the startup within government model, I think that there are powerful solutions there. But in ter- in terms of the analytics sphere, we have we have the power to make the analytics sphere better. Like in the age of big data and machine learning, when everything can be quantified, like it's actually not hard to quantify which lines of analysis have been right and which lines of analysis have been wrong. I think they should be quantified. Um, what people who are interested in the field and spend some time um, – and I say this non-pejoratively. I say this, in fact, admiringly – who spend time nerding out – and um, like paying attention to what scholars are saying, like looking back and assessing analytic records and asking the question, why do people get things right? Why do they get things wrong? That would be a powerful service. You know, I pay a lot of attention to my own track record. Obviously, I pay attention to the field's track record as well. But if you don't have overall kind of incentives to get things right, and you know, if people are even um, like indifferent to looking backward and evaluating their own track record, the field is going to be very slow to improve. And that's a problem because the field matters, right? We're not, you know, we're not like election pundits who could say, oh, yes, you know, in this midterm election, you know, the Republicans or Democrats are going to trounce the other party. And then, you know, the next day when we're wrong, you know, we'll cut, we can come up with a, some justification. If you look at pundits who are talking about elections, like they, you know, they they don't really matter, right? Like pundits getting an election wrong does not have a huge impact, um, you know, in, unless they they have the impact of kind of suppressing voter turnout. That is the the one area where where pundits can make a difference. But what we're talking about is a field where people are where where there are experts who are liaising with and influencing policymakers 
all of us who are in that position, we have a responsibility to get these things right. These are literally, these are some life and death questions. So as to what citizens could do, I would love to see citizens more involved in actually just looking at what is the record of the field? Who's getting things right? Who's getting things wrong? And why? What can we learn? How can we get better? Because this field does intersect with the public sphere. That's why people who are in this field are on Twitter and writing books and the like. And it's not clear to me that you know, Twitter follower counts or you know, bestsellers or, um, or the like are at all related to who's providing good and useful and accurate information that stands the test of time. So we have another question, which actually is one of our questions here from the Loopcast, so it fits in perfectly from Andrew Zamet, and he says, how might your recommendations chapter in the book be updated in light of today's threat, and most importantly, our political context? So I reread the uh, recommendations chapter, and there's one recommendation I made, which I strongly disagree with today, um, but the rest, I think, holds up well though it doesn't fully get at the question, right? Like if looking through um, the recommendations chapter, it um, has recommendations that center on um, some of the uh, things that we talked about, you know, building resiliency uh, is one of my recommendations. Understand Al Qaeda's strategy is another of my recommendations. Um, address the politicization of terrorism is a recommendation. It's one where I disagree with the specifics now, uh, but that's not because politicization shouldn't be addressed. It's actually because I think that the mechanism I outlined um, could be used as a tool for greater politicization and squelching of dissent. And I think actually, to some extent, the mechanism I outlined, which is informal expert networks, uh, was used in exactly that way um, in the years following publication of this book. Uh, so that's, an, that's a recommendation which I, where I you know, um, support the goal, but I think I got the mechanism uh, wrong. Um, I talk about reducing the expense of national security. I think all of these are, are good goals. Uh, I would endorse them today. But I don't think they get at that central question, which, which I outlined before. You know, the central question of how do you empower good strategic thinking? How do you empower better action? And I think there, understanding the dynamics of the competition between state actors and violent non-state actors is so important. And it's not just violent non-state actors in the jihadist sphere, but rather a whole range of violent non-state actors, cartels, um, you know, other forms of terrorist groups, other forms of insurgencies, ethno-nationalist movements, hacker collectives. Um, all of these actors, all of these non-state actors have the advantages as well as the disadvantages of startup firms. And I think just understanding the, the problems that bureaucracy creates and the need for de-bureaucratization that can create you know, a better connection between strategy and action, faster action and clearer success or failure for these startup within government efforts, I think that is one of the key uh, recommendations that, that I would make. Now, um, one thing Andrew asks about is uh, the current political climate. And I'd say it's, it's obvious we're in a current political climate, uh, both in the United States 
and also if you look at, at Europe as well, uh, which is a, a fraught political climate. Um, I don't think that that's an aberration. I think that uh, there's a, a wide variety of reasons uh, that the political climate is fraught. And I think you know, we've seen the, the seeds for this um, you know, bearing fruit for some time, and we're moving closer to a political crisis point. Um, I don't think that ultimately um, I started up within government advocacy would address that. Um, I think it can to some extent, but it's very much indirectly. Well, what the startup within government model can do is produce some clear government successes on thorny issues. And I think part of the problem that we've had over the past couple of decades what is often, you know, I talk about conventional wisdom being wrong um, or bureaucracies being ineffective. When that's the case, repeatedly, distrust for government grows. Um, now, there's multiple causes, so don't take this at all being monocausal. Uh, but one reason for, like, Brexit, um, for you know, Trump's election as a protest vote, for the rise of populist party in Europe, parties in Europe, is the idea that bureaucracies are not in touch and not able to solve problems. I think if you have a model where government is more effective, um, that can be kind of unifying, depoliticizing, and... Uh, it can be helpful. Now, ultimately, the roots of our political crisis are much greater, uh, and I have many thoughts on those, but I think it's a little bit beyond uh, the scope of this interview. But I, I think thinking about how can government adapt to address 21st century problems is so important. I think the answer is very clearly structural. I think if you look at it just through a policy perspective, you're not going to get the answer because the answer ultimately isn't, you know, it should implement policies that are more in line with my own specific preferences. I think those, no matter what your preferences are, those aren't fully going to get us there because even policies that we might see um, as being laudable oftentimes get thwarted by bureaucracy. Um, I, I really think that we need to think about the structure of government, um, you know, not the, the meta structure, but I think that, for example, the U.S. actually has a remarkably good structure in terms of checks and balances. I think there's a lot that's very good about that. It's the level below that of bureaucracy that's been built up, and it's been built up around 19th or 20th, 20th century questions, and in kind of a faster-moving, more complex world, suddenly ends up being a roadblock to a lot of laudable or necessary actions. And I have one more question, which I think is very important because I've actually had people ask me this as well. And it's, it's a difficult question in a sense of giving advice to young analysts and people looking to break into the field. So what type of advice would you have for those individuals? Uh, that's a question I love. So I'll, I'll provide a few pieces of advice. Uh, I think the first one is... Above all else, when it comes to method, um, think about epistemology. Think about the study of knowledge and how do we know what we think we know. Um, if you look at the problems that I've isolated in terms of the field getting things wrong, a lot of them are epistemic problems where, among other things, the fact that everybody believes something parlays itself into this conventional wisdom where – 
it, you know, it's kind of like a bunch of people all retweeting each other and thinking that the more retweets you get, the closer you are to truth. Um, I think that you, we, we need to always ask questions about how do we know what we think we know. Second thing um, is, you know, we talk, when we talk about the field, I'm, I'm thinking more about analysts rather than people who want to be policymakers because first and foremost, that's what I am. I'm an analyst. But the second thing, so the second thing I would say uh, for analysts is the best and highest purpose of an analyst, in my view, is to get things right. I think the more that people see their analysis as trying to advance a certain policy agenda, the more likely they are to get things wrong. Um, in fact, if you if you look at analysts who have bad track records, I'd say um, you can often predict it by secondary characteristics that they're going to make errors. I think generally um, the more ad hominem an analyst is, the more likely they are to make errors. It, it suggests that they've personalized things, and uh, once you've personalized a policy dispute or an analytic dispute, it's going to be hard for you to change your mind once you're proven wrong. Another thing is the, the kind of angrier an analyst is about their anal- uh, analysis, like, I think the the more likely they are to make an error. The more dismissive they are of dissenting views, the more likely they are to make errors. And at the end of the day, if you're an, an analyst, like your goal is not to push an agenda. Like You should be judged by whether you're getting things right or getting things wrong. So that brings me to the third thing, is track your own record and be brutally honest about it. Um, even if some of your errors are invisible to the world, um, be upfront about the fact that you're making them. You know, I did this fairly recently in a piece I wrote for Defense One. On um, It was a, an article about how terrorists would use artificial intelligence. And one of the points I made is that the field um, drastically underestimated uh, the, the potential for terrorists to make use of drones. And in passing, I said that this was an error I made. <laughs> and so my editor asked me for a link to it. And I was like, well, you're not going to find it like, I can't find it on a Google search. Um, I said, you know, I know that I've, I made some comments on Twitter, but this is just, it's something I got wrong. And he's like, huh, <laughs> you know, an analyst admitting that they got something wrong when other people wouldn't find it out. He said, that's a first. I said, yeah, well, let's make history here. And so it you know, went to print with me uh, acknowledging an error that would be difficult for people to find. But I thought it was just important to be upfront with that I got that wrong and why I got it wrong. So even though it would be invisible to the field, I think it's better for me to have understood that I made that error and to adjust to it, um, you know, to, to understand why I made it. In this case, the reason I made it was I wasn't thinking of the improvements that would be made in civilian drone systems, in consumer drone systems. Um, and I also wasn't thinking through um, various ways that drones could be weaponized. Instead, I was thinking of terrorist use of drones through a predator model, where they'd be like flying one large clunky drone and trying to shoot missiles, in which case, obviously, they'd get shot out of the sky. But if you look at the adaptations that ISIS and Al-Qaeda-aligned groups have made, they're making very different use of drones. And it's effective. Cartels are doing the same thing. The Taliban is doing the same thing. And that's something I missed coming because of the framework that I had for understanding it. So you need to track your record and do a good job of tracking it and be upfront about it, even if other people wouldn't understand that you're wrong. 
Like, at the end of the day, the way we become better is tracking our errors. And that's true at everything you do. That's true if you're picking up a sport. It's true if you're playing chess. Um, it's true if you're preparing for the LSAT or a standardized test. Um, for some reason, we are in a field where people like to pretend they never get every, anything wrong, but that's just not the case. Um, it's only by admitting what we get wrong that we learn. Um, the fourth thing I would say is you know, social media is big. It's big in the analytics sphere, but you have to think in a greater depth than social media. And you should never – and further, you should never be fooled by the popularity of a view that you have. Um, our goal is not to be popular. Like the things that I'm most proud of in my own career um, are, are positions I took that were deeply unpopular at the time. In some cases, positions that cost me professional opportunities, positions that cost me friends. And the reason I'm proud of them is because I got them right. Like I, I'm proud of times when I challenged conventional wisdom, even when I ruffled that feathers, but where what I said proved right over time. And I think that's what you have to be willing to do as an analyst. You have to be willing to be right, even at professional cost to yourself, because that's what the profession should demand at its heart. It should demand you getting things right. It should demand you – I mean, this is the, the phrase that's often used in a leftist context, but I think that it applies regardless of your political view, is speaking truth to power. If, if you are right on an issue – I don't, and here I'm, I'm talking more an analytic issue, right? Like, to me, I'm le- as I said at the outset, I think that um, the analytic field should not be uh, mistaken as a political field. I think the more political people are, the more prone they often are to analytic error. But if you're right about something, you know, don't kind of don't kind of thwart what your institution is doing. Like, don't try to um, don't make a nuisance of yourself or or um, be counterproductive, but also you know, don't kowtow to what is a popular line. Uh, we've seen under uh, multiple administrations, and it certainly happened, um, you know, it, it's, it certainly has happened um, under more than one administration, we've seen uh, immense pressure to take certain analytic positions that are um, popular or serve the policy preferences of that administration. And uh, unfortunately, I've seen some analysts who are Many analysts who are very talented um, basically buckling under that pressure or in many cases like gladly succumbing to that pressure and um, you know, being, um, being kind of really inappropriately antagonistic and backbiting towards those who don't. I think that, that any young analyst has to be willing to be that unpopular person. Like, if you're not willing to take a stand for what's true and have other people condemn you for it, then you should be in a field, a different field. You should be a pundit, or you should be a policymaker, or you should be involved in elections. What the field of analysis needs is people who are willing to get things right and who see that above all else as being the absolute most important thing that they can do. Well, I think that's all fantastic advice, and I agree with you on 
all of those points, um, especially admitting when you're wrong, because there are times everyone gets something wrong, and that is the way to further the field and further the knowledge in this field. So thank you for that. Concluding, what type of final thoughts do you have on Bin Laden's legacy? So wrapping this up and bringing the legacy back in. Well, in my last answer, I talked quite a bit about uh, saying things that are unpopular. Uh, you know, Bin Laden's legacy, I was, I was you know, frankly disappointed uh, with uh, how the book was received. Um, Sina on Twitter, I think, called it uh, one of the most slept on policy books, which I basically uh, agree with. Um, as I said, at the time, it was seen as being so counterintuitive as to not be worth taking seriously. I remember some of the radio interviews I did uh, where some station would have me on, and they'd say the title of the book, Bin Laden's Legacy, Why We're Still Losing the War on Terror. And I would say, dismissively, so, Mr. Garden said, Ross, why are we losing? Um, and it would be them just basically saying, you know, whatever, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, those were the kind of, of interviews I had back in 2011. Uh, as I said, fast forward to 2018, and now all this stuff seems obvious. Um, I would have liked it had the book been better received. Uh, obviously, all of us want to, you know, if we're writing a book, you, wa- you obviously want an audience. But I'm proud of the way that it aged. Uh, I'm proud of the way that it properly discerned trends that would become more important over time. And so you both this, and you know, unexpectedly there was another um, podcast, uh, the Likeville podcast uh, with John Faithful Hamer. That's another podcast I, I recommend as having very thoughtful policy discussions. Um, unexpectedly, when, I, when he had me on, he talked about Bin Laden's legacy at, at some depth. And uh, this is actually after our interview had already been set. So it's kind of a pleasure to be able to talk about it twice in uh, in a short period. But I'm proud of the way that it aged, even though it didn't get the reception I would like. Um, and it, it's nice to be able to look back at it. And overall, um, even though I would have liked to ha- it, you know, for the book to have um, you know, moved the dial on how we looked at this issue at the time, or to have been a massive bestseller, um, even though it didn't mean <laughs> those uh, kind of aspirations which which we would all like for our products. Um, I'm proud of the way that it's aged. It's nice to be able to have a, a retrospective on it. Um, I think that it's it's a project which I'd regard as, as done. It gave rise to future things that I would work on, ranging from the work on uh, violent non-state actors as startup firms that we discussed, um, including the creation of Valens Global, my company, which is now uh, the thing that takes up most of my um, thinking and professional time. Um, it's given rise to those, but it's nice to look back at this project. And ultimately, I executed it and um, went about my work on the book um, and the follow-up work in a way that I'm proud of. And I think that's something that we should all aspire towards regardless of the popular success of our projects, um, I think that there is a higher calling. And in terms of the higher calling of getting trends right and uh, being the kind of analyst that I believe I and others should be, um, I think that the book succeeded in that regard. 
And I'm proud of that, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity uh, here on this podcast to revisit it. I think those are perfect words to end the show on, and we're always so happy to have you on the Loopcast. It's always a pleasure. So thank you so much for spending your Saturday morning with us to talk about Bin Laden's legacy. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you.